Luke chapter 7, verse 36. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven." For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Amen. We know the Lord. Will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the statement from the Lord found in verse 47, where Christ says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Since the fall of man, In the Garden of Eden and the dawn of creation, the greatest and deepest need for sinful men has always been the need for forgiveness. Apart from such a blessing, men must live under the heavy burden of guilt. I dare say that in a society that is made up of fallen sinners, it becomes nearly impossible for relationships to function without the blessing of forgiveness. Homes couldn't function without it. Marriages would not survive apart from it. Relationships between parents and children would become severely strained apart from it. 
I think it would be accurate to spread the application so as to say that businesses couldn't even function apart from it, and churches would splinter into unnumbered factions without the practice of forgiveness. And when I speak now of forgiveness, especially in the realm of social relationships, I'm speaking of the need for forgiveness to be obtained and the ability for a man or woman, a husband or wife, a parent or child to be able to give forgiveness as well as receive it. Forgiveness is something, obviously, that unsaved sinners need. And it's also something that Christians continually need. The continuity of that need is readily seen by the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that acts as a guide to teach us to pray, one of the petitions is for forgiveness and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Matthew 6.12. Think about that for a moment. That prayer is a guide to our praying, and by including such a petition as the one I've just read, forgive us our debts, it becomes readily apparent that the need for forgiveness is continual enough that each time we pray, we should utilize that petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm so glad that the Lord included that in his guide to us for prayer. He certainly knew, didn't he, that that would be one we would need often and should utilize every time we pray. I find it rather interesting to note that in tracing the word forgive or forgiveness throughout the Old Testament, where do you suppose the book would be found where that word occurs most often? Well, that would be the book of Leviticus. If you can imagine that. You find it in that book in connection with all those various animal sacrifices that are prescribed by Moses, whether it be the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering. The common refrain for all the burnt offerings is in these words, and it shall be forgiven him. It was one of the reasons, you know, and I'm uh, reading on this and having to study this in some measure. I've been reading a book about the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New, and the idea is being put forward that the Old Covenant in the Old Testament was simply a republication of the law. And I can't deny that in some respects you do see uh, that concept But on the other time, it would be entirely faulty to say that the Old Covenant was merely a covenant of law. What was the purpose behind the whole ceremonial law? Well, it was just this, that the Israelites could be forgiven for their sins. So it's really quite remarkable when you think about it. The Old Testament is not simply the book of of the law, And indeed, we find the gospel, even in the Old Testament, and most notably, the idea of forgiveness throughout that book. Another place where you find a strong emphasis on forgiveness is in the prayer of King Solomon upon the completion of the temple. 
And in that dedication prayer that is found in 1 Kings chapter 8, you find Solomon reciting various circumstances in which the Israelites would need forgiveness. And as he makes intercession to God in that dedication prayer, he's asking God to hear and forgive his people when they seek him for forgiveness in those various circumstances. The cross-reference to that prayer is in Second Chronicles 6, where no fewer than five times you find King Solomon raising the issue of forgiveness to the Lord. And it's in that setting of Solomon seeking the Lord under all these circumstances for forgiveness, that the answer to his petitions is given in the very next chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in that verse that we're all familiar with, verse 14, where we read, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I know that we take that text and we kind of make it what is sometimes referred to as a capital text. And that is where you lift a text that is so meaningful out of its immediate context that it just stands as an entity of its own. And with some verses that can be legitimately done. But I think in this case, even though that verse may function as a capital text, it is good to keep in mind the context and the setting in which the Lord gives those words. It is in answer to Solomon's prayer, Lord, forgive thy people when they commit this sin. Forgive thy people when they go astray in this fashion. And after four or five different scenarios, Lord, please forgive, forgive, forgive. And then comes the answer that he would indeed forgive if the people would humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. With such an emphasis then in the Old Testament and the New Testament on what we might call the doctrine of forgiveness or the practice of forgiveness, and what is beyond all doubt the sinner's need for forgiveness and the Christian's need for forgiveness, it becomes very necessary that Christians should be strong in their understanding of that doctrine and practice. I dare say there are many Christians that bear guilt burdens that they should not bear because of a lack of understanding about forgiveness especially a lack of understanding or a lack of appreciation for the basis upon which God gives forgiveness. And then there are other instances in which Christians find it hard to issue forgiveness. That's a very serious handicap, you know, with ramifications that bear on the real condition of a professing Christian soul. A person's salvation is rightly called into question who does not have the ability to forgive. And such an inability ultimately springs from pride and self-righteousness, which keeps that Christian from knowing how great and how constant his own need for forgiveness runs. And so this doctrine or practice is worth studying for a number of reasons. 
when you consider your need for forgiveness as well as your need to be forgiving, when you consider the benefits gained by knowing you're forgiven and the burdens borne by your failure to know your forgiveness, these things all add up to the need to not only know but to master this doctrine of forgiveness. And not just to master it, but to internalize it. That's oftentimes what's missing. Not difficult to understand the doctrine, but it is something that most definitely needs to be internalized so that you may begin and proceed throughout your day being governed by the impact of your own forgiveness on your own life. Oh, you do well to make it your prayer in the morning. Lord, help me to know how much I'm forgiven today. Help me to know and appreciate the price that secured this forgiveness. And may it transform my life and equip me for whatever circumstances I encounter in the course of this day. So I want to look at this theme this afternoon. I want to set it before you with the hope that you will not only know it, but that you will internalize it. And by internalizing it, I mean seeking the Lord to take it from your head to your heart so that it finds sound lodging there and your life is transformed. May the Holy Spirit stamp on all our hearts this afternoon this doctrine of forgiveness. And in exploring the doctrine, I want to present it to you from a number of dis differing aspects, okay? Let's consider first forgiveness from the aspect of authority. Forgiveness from the aspect of authority. In Luke chapter 5, as well as Mark chapter 2, I won't have you turn there. I'm calling on your memory of the content of these passages and I'm sure you'll know it when I summarize it for you. In these chapters, we have the account of a group of men that bring a sick man on his bed to Jesus in order to be healed. If you recall the story, then you'll know how they couldn't get to Jesus because the crowd was so thick. So they had to be creative and think outside the box, as it were. And so they hoist their sick friend to the roof of the house where Jesus was speaking, the house where he was speaking, and then they proceed to undo the roof, which enables them to lower their sick friend right into the presence of Christ. And in that setting, we read in Luke 5 and verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? The Pharisees got that right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What they failed to appreciate is that the man who did forgive sins was in fact God, the second person of the Trinity. The question then raised by the Pharisees was not a question that Christ would have disputed with them. He would have been in complete agreement with them that no one can forgive sins but God alone. No one has that kind of authority. 
But then in order to demonstrate that he did have that kind of authority, because Christ is the Son of God, he then supernaturally healed the man, and the man was unable to pick up his bed and walk away. The miracle was performed for a very specific purpose that Christ reveals in verse 24, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power, or literally authority, upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating that in such narratives as these, we see what amounts to and what should be taken to be a present-day application of Christ's miracles. There are those, you know, who look at Christ's miracles, and they say to themselves, if Christ healed a man of sickness then, why not now? If Christ healed a man of blindness or deafness or demon possession or even death itself, then certainly Christ can do the same thing today. And it's true, he can. And on rare occasions we hear of such miraculous manifestations that dumbfound those in the medical industry. So I'm not going to say that there are times when he doesn't perform literal physical miracles. He certainly can, and on occasion he does. That's not the point of his miracles, though. The point to Christ's miracles were to demonstrate that Christ was God, and by demonstrating he was God, he also demonstrated that he had the authority to forgive sins. This is what should thrill your soul about this account of the healing of this paralytic man who was lowered down into the presence of Christ. It should move you to stand up and shout hallelujah, not simply because a man was healed uh, thousands of years ago of, of of an infirmity who since that time, long time ago, has passed on. But no, you should shout hallelujah because it proves that Christ has authority to forgive sins. And if we're going to come away with any sense of assurance that our sins truly are forgiven, then we have to know and have the matter settled in our minds and hearts that the one who has authority to forgive sins has forgiven your sins and mine Forgiveness that comes from those who have no authority to give it comes with a rather hollow ring to it. And it's worth stating here that no ecclesiastical person or institution has the authority to forgive sins. No pope or cardinal or bishop or priest or minister has that kind of authority. The Pharisees spoke correctly when they raised the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now a preacher or a church does possess the authority to declare and teach the grounds upon which God will forgive sins. He can set forth the terms of forgiveness in accordance with God's word, but he has no inherent authority uh, on his own to actually forgive the sins himself. God alone has that authority. 
And we should note in connection with God's authority that God will not exercise that authority without a just basis for it. In other words, God will not simply and arbitrarily forgive sins. I made reference a moment ago to the book of Leviticus. I pointed out to you that the common refrain that is found a number of times, especially in chapters 4 and 5, but I didn't give you the entire refrain. What I quoted for you was the phrase, and it shall be forgiven him. If I could fill in that refrain a little more, it would include these words, and the priest shall make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Every time you find that phrase, it shall be forgiven him, you also see the words, the priest shall make an atonement for him. So you get the connection then, I trust, between atonement and forgiveness. And what this indicates to us quite clearly then is that there is that close a connection between forgiveness and atonement. Indeed, atonement provides the grounds for forgiveness. Those Old Testament sacrifices, of course, pointed to Christ, who would make the actual atonement. This becomes the grounds then for Christ exercising his authority to forgive. He doesn't simply say, forgive and forget. There's something bothersome, you know, about the phrase, forgive and forget. I know the intention of the phrase. I know that when in the realm of our relationships we have occasion to forgive one another, that we are supposed to forget instead of bringing up the matter again and again. I think, however, that we do better to replace the phrase forgive and forget with the phrase forgive and remember. Not that we're to remember the sin that's been forgiven, but we're to remember Christ who provided the grounds upon which our sins could be forgiven. For it is in the remembrance of Christ that we can truly gain assurance that our sins are forgiven. He has the authority to forgive us our sins. He exercised that authority upon the grounds of his atoning death. So we have that aspect of forgiveness, the aspect of authority. And by viewing forgiveness in connection with Christ's authority and the grounds upon which he exercises that authority, we can gain in our hearts a deep and lasting assurance that our sins truly are forgiven. So we have that aspect, the aspect of authority. But would you think with me next upon forgiveness from the aspect of need? Forgiveness from the aspect of need. And let me now ask you a question, and have you contemplated it? How much forgiveness do you need from God on a daily basis? In the portion of Scripture that we read from Luke chapter 7, we have the account of a woman who comes into the house of Simon the Pharisee and proceeds to anoint the feet of Christ and to weep at his feet and to wipe his feet with her hair. Simon is repulsed by this action, and it leads him to doubt the character of Christ. 
This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for he is a, she is a sinner. Verse 39. This leads to Christ speaking a parable to Simon in which he describes two creditors, one who owed 500 pence, the other 50. Both debtors are forgiven in the parable, and then Christ wants to know from Simon which one would love the creditor most. The answer is obvious, and Simon answers rightly, that the one who is forgiven most will be the one who loves most. Christ goes on to explain that the woman who came into Simon's house and anointed Christ's feet was very conscious of her need for forgiveness and had been forgiven much. So again, I raise the question to you. How much forgiveness do you need? Perhaps I should phrase the question a different way. Let me state it like this. How much do you love Christ? What is it that leads you to love Him? And what is it that can lead you to love Him more? Is it not your awareness of how much you've been forgiven? Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me on this point. I'm not now suggesting that the more you sin, the more you love Christ, because you'll understand that you've received a greater amount of forgiveness. Some would twist the passage, I suppose, to apply it that way, and would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. I'm only suggesting now that if you will truly evaluate yourself by the very high standard of God's law, then you will know in increasing measure how much you've been forgiven. The law of God, you see, weighs not only our actions, but it weighs much more than our actions. It weighs our thoughts, it weighs our motives, it weighs our words, uh, in addition to our actions. And whatever comes short of loving the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength comes short of the standard of God's law and leaves you and me in need of much forgiveness. Would you like an all-encompassing confession for sin this morning? Let me give you a confession you can take to God that will take into account your thoughts and words and deeds and motives all in one comprehensive statement. Here it is. God, forgive me for not loving you with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. And if you want to add to it, you can add to it by saying, Forgive me, God, for the sins I've committed, both of commission and omission. And forgive me, God, for the things I've tried to do for you, but have not done with pure motives and have done only half-heartedly. And in all these matters, you can be sure that God will forgive you. And if the reality of that forgiveness and the extent of that forgiveness will reach the depth of your soul, then it will impact you the way it did this woman in Luke chapter 7, and it will give rise to the statement being applied to you that you love much. You love much because you appreciate in some measure the extent of your own forgiveness. This is why we need to understand as best we can the character of God. And this is why we need to understand as best we can the sinfulness of man. 
It's only by bringing God down and raising ourselves up that we'll deceive ourselves into thinking that our forgiveness is not really that big of a deal. And I only need a little bit. If I could put the matter to you plainly and simple, it amounts to this. Pride is what keeps us from loving God, and humility is what enables us to love Him more. Pride can and should be overcome by a right view of God's character and a right view of God's law, and humility is cultivated by a right view of Christ's provision for our forgiveness. So we've seen forgiveness now from the aspect of authority. We see it from the aspect of need. One more thought, and then I'm through. Let's think on forgiveness from the aspect of debt. Forgiveness from the aspect of debt. In Matthew 18, we find Peter coming to Christ with a question about forgiveness. Peter asked the Lord in verse 21, How oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Christ answers by saying, in effect, that there is no limit to how often we forgive others in the realm of our relationships. And then to emphasize his point and drive home the importance of the issue, Christ tells a parable about a king who would take account of his servants. One particular servant comes before this king who owes 10,000 talents, and when he begs the king for patience and pledges to pay all, the king forgives his servant the entire debt. This servant, in turn, goes to those who owe him, and when they seek mercy, the same mercy that this servant had sought, the servant fails to give it. And when the word of the servant's treatment toward those that owed him reaches the king, the servant is summoned again before the king, and the forgiveness that was previously given to that servant is nullified, and the servant is delivered to the tormentors until he would pay everything that he owes. This parable, along with other statements made by Christ, must be understood in the light of the gospel, or else we'll be misled into thinking that we can earn forgiveness by issuing forgiveness to others. That is an entirely wrong notion. But I'll grant you that on the surface of it, some statements do appear to indicate that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew 6, 12. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Like I say, these statements must be understood in connection with the gospel. And the truth that these statements bring to us very forcibly is the truth that where God issues forgiveness, God expects the recipients of forgiveness to be forgiving toward others. Forgiveness, you see, is never really received or believed in without having a transforming effect on the life of the one who claims to receive it. 
Or in other words, if I have truly seen my own need for forgiveness and have seen in some measure the extent of that need and have petitioned Christ to provide for that need, and Christ has answered prayer and has provided for that need by forgiving me, the um, outcome of that will be I will not be able to help but to be forgiving of others. I asked you earlier in the message, how much forgiveness do you need? Let me ask you another question now. How much forgiveness do you need to give? Are there others that you need to forgive? Parents, do you need to forgive your children? Children, do you need to forgive your parents? Husbands, do you need to forgive your wives? Wives, your husbands? I said in my introduction that society can't function in a world of depraved sinners without forgiveness being exercised. And families can't function in families of depraved sinners apart from forgiveness being exercised. I don't know if there's anybody here. Uh, there, there would be perhaps a few here this afternoon that would remember Harold Winalda. Some of you remember Harold. Haven't heard from Harold in a long time. Makes me wonder if he's still on this side of the river or not. But uh, Harold was one of those guys that was militant in his Calvinism. Every time he shook my hand at the end of a service, he always had a word to say against these free willers and this easy believism. Highly critical of both. I remember when I got a call from him and he was telling me that he was getting remarried. First question I had for him, Harold, is she a Calvinist? You're not going to marry one of these free willers, are you? And I think what he said to me was, well, I think she has a teachable spirit. Oh, Harold, <laughs> you know, what has come over you, my friend? But uh, those of you who knew Harold, you might also remember that Harold had a severe falling out with his family over the issue of his mother being placed in a nursing home. He deeply resented the fact that that was done by his siblings. He pledged to them that he would take care of his mother. She can live with me in my home. As I look at it now, um, as good-intentioned as Harold was, I'm not sure that he could have uh, actually risen to that occasion. But because of that, he took that to be an awful betrayal of his mother. And for several months, maybe even years, Harold would not and could not forgive his siblings for that deed. He used to wrestle with the issue in his own heart. And he would oftentimes raise the issue to me by saying to me at the door after a service, I don't need to forgive them, do I? If they don't repent and seek me for forgiveness, I don't have to forgive them, do I? I remember one of those rare occasions when Dr. Cairns was here in our church, and Harold would raise that issue uh, with Dr. Cairns. And when Harold would raise that issue with me, do I have to forgive him? They're not seeking me for it. They haven't repented. Do I have to forgive them? I would say, Harold, I'm not going to tell you what to do. 
I'm not going to say to you that you must forgive or you must not forgive your siblings. What I will say to you is that whatever you do or don't do, make sure that you are governed by the forgiveness that you've received from Christ yourself and let that determine your conduct. Happily, Harold was eventually reconciled to his siblings. I don't know that they ever sought him for forgiveness. I don't know that they ever regretted what they had done. In their judgment, they probably did what they felt they had to do. I don't know either whether or not Harold actually said to them that he forgave them. Such a gesture might have felt very hollow if they didn't feel themselves to be in need of forgiveness. Indeed, such a statement might have provoked them to anger, since underlying such forgiveness would have been the accusation that what they had done was wrong. I think there are times when the matter of forgiving others amounts to gaining victory in our own hearts that we've forgiven someone, whether or not we've actually made a statement to them. If they do seek it, then yes, we are bound to give it. But in some instances, our forgiveness may need to take on the form that is expressed by Christ himself when he said from Calvary's cross in Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How often a wife may have to pray that way for her husband. Father, forgive him. He means well, but he doesn't know what he's doing, and he doesn't know the effect of his actions or lack of actions toward me. Here again, it could be a futile thing to tell him you forgive him. He may be so oblivious to what he's doing that he doesn't think he needs it. Well, in that case, take your case to God himself. He is, after all, your highest court of appeal. The same application could be made regarding parents and their children or children and their parents. God, forgive mom and dad. They mean well, and I'm sure they're striving to do right, but they don't know the negative impact of their dealings with me. They can't tell that they're suffocating and killing me. And could I just say here that where this type of situation becomes most acute is where parents fall into the temptation of forcing external compliance and leave the matter of their children's heart condition untended to. This is why I said in my introduction that the doctrine of forgiveness not only needs to be mastered, but it needs to be internalized. I need the truth of it to reach my heart, in other words. If I know my need for forgiveness, and I know the reality of that forgiveness based on the authority of God's word and Christ's atoning death, then I gain the ability to forgive even when that forgiveness is not sought. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I dare say that statement covers by far the largest category of our sins. We don't know what we're doing. And it teaches us to be very broad in the way we issue forgiveness, be able to issue it even when it's not sought, even when those who 
perhaps ought to seek it, don't know any better. The failure to give it in your own heart before God can only lead to your own bondage and bitterness that accompany the inability to forgive. So we see forgiveness from the aspect of authority. Christ has that authority. We see it from the aspect of need. Our need is deep and extensive and continual. And we see it from the aspect of debt. We owe God the debt of gratitude. And that debt is paid in part by forgiving others. Have you been forgiven of your sins? And are you forgiving as a result? Oh, may the Lord stamp the truth of this wonderful blessing deeply upon our hearts, that our lives may be transformed by the glorious truth of our own forgiveness. Let's close then in prayer. Dear Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, We thank you for the wonderful, glorious truth that our sins are forgiven. We thank thee, dear God, that thou dost never fail to forgive. And yet, Lord, we cannot deny that when you forgive us, you do expect something from us in return, that we forgive others. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt help us to do this, even when it's hard, And we pray that thou wilt help us during those difficult times to recognize in even fuller measure how much we've been forgiven. So, Lord, stamp thy word on our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.